Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. Do you ever have this experience where you really are desiring something? You desire it deeply, but what you actually want deep down inside doesn't quite reconcile with that desire you're experiencing. I think this is a human experience we all have, and we only notice it if I only notice it if I take the time to ponder my desires, bring them into reality, bring them into the blueprint for what God has in store for my life or try to discern what he has in store for my life before acting. And this is what much of Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body has been all about. We've been really kind of nitpicking in a certain respect at this moment in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus challenges us as human beings, especially men, but we apply it to men and women, to understand that adultery isn't just that physical act of committing adultery. But God says, whoever even looks at a woman to desire her, to lust after her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And right now, Pope St. John Paul II is focusing in on the dimension of the heart and the purifying of our desires. In fact, Pope St. John Paul II, as we explain these three catechetical talks, 47 through 49, which Pope St. John Paul II gave 133 of them over the course of five years, he says that purity is a requirement of love. It is a dimension of the inner truth of love in man's heart. And I think that this is helping us to understand where Pope St. John Paul II starts to look at what does it mean to see erotic love, that kind of sense of eroticism that is often maybe from a Christian worldview uh, downgraded to just base carnal desires that are disordered. And Pope St. John Paul II is challenging us to think of it as more than that, to not just reduce it to base desires, but to reconcile our fallen human nature, essentially, with the deepest design God has for our heart. So to talk about this now with me is Father Tim Grumbach. If you don't know Father Tim, he's been a longtime friend here at Trending with Timory, and he is the chaplain at uh, Bishop Alamany High School in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. And Father Tim, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this segment of Theology of the Body, talking about erotic love and the redemption of the body. I that you begin there with the purification of desires, because uh, St. John Paul II, uh, at the heart of his spirituality, was very Carmelite. He wrote his doctoral dissertation on faith in the writings of St. John of the Cross. And so very much you can find this Carmelite spirituality in his writings, uh, even in this this very philosophical writing of the theology of the body. And I actually just want to tie this real quickly to the gospel reading we just heard yesterday on sun, uh, this, the 25th Sunday of Ordinary Time uh, about the parable of the, the workers in the vineyard, and they come to the master expecting to receive more than they had agreed upon. And the master says, are you envious because I'm generous? Because he wants to give the same to the people who had only been working for an hour. And it's this desire to purify the hearts of those who had been working in the vineyard mm-hmm. all day because they were working to receive something rather than the joy of being able to work in the master's vineyard to begin with. 
that they had all day to work in the master's vineyard. And, and so with our own desires, do we desire what the master desires or just hope that he's kind of desiring the same thing we are? And mm -hmm. I was just making, you know, everyone listening is going to think the only thing I think about is Disneyland. But I was thinking from like a kid's <laughs> perspective, right? Um, are they doing the will of their parents when like every day a kid wants to go to Disneyland? But their parents are like, okay, we're going to go like on this one day in, in the summertime. And so that one day in the summertime, when they get to go to Disneyland, the, the children's will is the same as their parents' will. Does that mean that they're, they're good children all the time and their will is perfectly attuned to their parents? Oh, probably not. But it is for that one day. Uh, on the other hand, if the children are, instead of being like, I want my parents to want what I want, they go, I want what my parents want. And so they're finding out like, what chores do I have to do? Or I know this is pretty dramatic, right? <laughs> what do I have to do around the house daily so I can want what my parents want? I think we all want children to want that. But so there's that subtle distinction in the purification of our desires of do we just want God to want what we want and we can want anything or do we actually want what God wants? There's, there's a subtle distinction there, but there's a difference between mm. you know, a conformity to God's will. We happen to want the same things at one moment in time or mm. a uniformity to God's will. I want what God mm. wants all the time. And so that's what I heard in the gospel. And that's what I'm hearing in this is this purification of our eros, our desires. And um, Pope Benedict XVI actually writes about this in his beautiful encyclical, uh, Deus Caritas Est, mm. God is love where he says that you know, Nietzsche said that Christianity had poisoned Eros, had looked at its sensuality and said it was bad. And Benedict, you know, drawing from JP2, would say, no, it's quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. The world has poisoned Eros by making it only sensual. But Eros comes from God. It is a gift from God. It is a, uh, as, as Plato said, it, you know, it draws the, inner, the man inward toward all that is good, true, and beautiful, and that's the proper understanding of eros. And we can recognize it in our sexuality. But if only concupiscence, the, the, tend, uh, the tending towards sinfulness that came with original sin, if that is uh, poisoning eros, it's going to become only sensual. We're only going to stop at the, the surface level instead of realizing how the, the beauty of another person and, and sexual intimacy and attraction actually draws great things out of us. Mm. You're making me think back to kind of a Disney analogy, the classic Disney film Pinocchio, and there are still moral mm. messages taught. And I think of Pleasure Island in Pinocchio and how mm -hmm. on the surface, that's great. Go have fun. Go to this carnival. Go to this amusement park. But if that's all we indulge in from the tasty treats to the to the rides that go round and round ad nauseum, uh, we become a disfigured and disoriented uh, version of ourselves. And I think that's so significant when we see desire can be a good thing, but sometimes not right now. And sometimes not ever if it's a disorder desire. And that example you gave of a kid who always wants to go to Disneyland but can only go in the summer with his parents, that helps to orient that there are other responsibilities and there's something beautiful in waiting for that thing that we so deeply desire. For example, you know, bringing this to people often reduce theology of the body strictly to a se sexual ethic, which is 100% not what it is. It is a, our human anthropology from a Catholic worldview that's so biblical. And so I think that that's key, even in that desire to be married, that desire for sexual intimacy, that those are things that are good in and of themselves to desire, but need to be engaged with in a rightly ordered way and waited for. 
Right, and all of it with the end of redemption in mind, the resurrection of the body. And JP2, much later on in the whole theology of the body, says we could do another whole set of catechesis about the resurrection of the body. And he does touch on it in the theology of the body. Uh, but uh, he focuses on human sexuality in this catechesis, which is what 133 uh, addresses, I think you said. Right. So, um, so he, could, he could have done two or three times more uh, of these catechesis uh, to talk about the redemption of the body, saying that it is so much more than just a, a matter of rules, but you have to keep in mind the beginning, the way we were created, the way that sin has affected us and led us to only look at Eros from the perspective of sensual desire and on the surface, but also to know that it can be redeemed as well. And again, I would point to Benedict the Sixteenth, Deus Caritas Est, God is love, to show that Eros is a good thing. It is not poisoned by Christianity, but uh, but by Christ's redemption, it has made what it was meant to be all this time. But it requires also agape love, a, a pouring out, a self-oblation. Because if you have this Eros love, which is only about receiving and being, you know, kind of ecstatic, drawn out of ourselves, uh, it'll, our love will become poison because we have nowhere to let it go. But if you have this agape love, which pours out, then uh, you will be able to receive the Eros and give it away as agape. But you also can't have agape alone. You need eros love because if you keep giving yourself away but are not receiving any love, then you're going to dry up and, and become a, a desert. You can become poisonous to yourself. And so mm -hmm. Benedict, again, drawing on JP2, would say that you need the eros love, which draws us out of ourselves. Uh, and you need to, yeah, and it needs to be purified by agape, which, which pours itself out. Mm -hmm. And likewise, you know, it's a cycle. Agape needs to be purified by eros as well. Mm -hmm. And so you can't have one without the other. And that's beginning with what JP2 has to say here about this purification of the desire of eros, which must go deeper than the sensual surface level pleasures that the world has poisoned eros with. And I will link on social media as well as in the episode notes to Deus Caritas S, which is a fantastic, fantastic papal encyclical on God is love. And actually, it's so fitting because it was released on Christmas Day in mm. 2005. And so it just gives us a glimpse of what this rather maybe hallmark holiday for many people has already begun now in the summer. Just go to Costco. It's already all about Christmas and what it's really actually about and what actually warms and brightens up and lightens our heart at the core of that is that sacrificial love of Christ. That again, like you said, understanding in the letter is that reconciling eros, passion, with at the same time that sacrificial love that the two go hand in hand. And I think that this is primal. It's primary. It's part of our origin story that we can't set aside and say, well, our origin story is just our fallen human nature. And so we need to look at the human body as base and problematic as Manichaeanism has in many respects done in saying the body is bad, but we can't just look at the body from a Freudian perspective that has a suspicion that everything at the end of the day is always sexual. And this is where Pope St. John Paul II, Father Tim, coins as you're talking about this phrase, ethos of redemption. That is this mode of operating that has to do with the redemption, the elevation, the raising up of the human body. In fact, Pope St. John Paul II in Talk 49 says, the, eso the ethos of the body is realized through self-dominion, 
through temperance of the desires. So he's talking about how self-dominion and temperance is so necessary. In other words, we have to stop. We need to think about what we're looking at, what we're longing for, and purify that. This is why Jesus Christ appeals deeply to the human heart. He's calling us to conform the alliance between our fallen human desires and then bring the primary deepest desires of the human person into this original sense of intention and design as God intended, which is ultimately what will bring true and authentic happiness which isn't an emotion, but it's ultimately joy in the grace of Christ. And that's why it's only possible, Father Tim, through grace. Right. And and (laughs) it's so only possible through grace because that means that it is Jesus loving through us and any attempt to love others uh, apart from that is ultimately selfish, maybe not malicious, but selfish. Is there any way to love somebody as God has loved them on our own um, and not have it come back to, you know, benefiting me somehow And so the only love that we're really deserving of is that love that is given to us through grace and that purification of our desires. We keep going back to that. And I love something here that JP2 says is that, uh, you know, what Jesus, Jesus's words are demanding. It demands Mm -hmm. us to go to our interior life and to see the selfish love. Am I loving others simply because I can get something out of it and, and feel some pleasure? Or is it because that person has been loved into being by God, and I'm responding to that. But he says that in Jesus's demands that we see that the human heart is above all the object of a call, not of an accusation. And we will hear that uh, that command from Jesus not to look at another person with lust. Otherwise, we will have committed adultery toward them or against them and feel the accusation of our hearts. Because you know, I think we all know that look of another person of looking at someone that way but is Jesus merely accusing us or is he calling us to something greater? And what does that demand of our hearts? It demands a lot of, uh, again, in the, in the Carmelite mystical tradition of a, a uh, an active night of the soul where we set aside things that uh, that are impure in our love. And it, But it also requires a passive experience where God does that work once we've done all the work that we could. So it demands a lot of us but it is also God will be doing so much more work than we are in the purification of these desires. Part of what I love, actually, my favorite part, should I say, of Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body are the differences that he highlights between men and women. I think Mm. this is part of the key underlying theme is this complementarity of persons. And I think that Pope St. John Paul II, in these few audiences that he gave, talks about how we as human people really need to know, love, and honor the value of men and the value of women, the differences of men and the differences of women. Otherwise, we fall prey to this depraved view of ourselves and others and to a depraved function, should I say, of how we function with ourselves and with others. And this is why Jesus is appealing to our heart. He's calling us to more, but he's calling us to a deeper understanding of ourselves. And I love you mentioned it's very Carmelite. It's this purification of desire by allowing God to consume and inform and form who we are. But with that, I think that theology of the body To really ponder this requires a slowing down of pace, this prayerful life, this contemplation that society completely dampens today. 
Right. It, it does take a slower pace to understand just at the surface level what John Paul II is saying because he speaks from such a, a high philosophical level uh, of morality and ethos. Um, but then to understand how does it strike our hearts? How is it more than just philosophy that we study and memorize? How does it become lived in our lives in a concrete way? And it happens in the heart. He says that again near the end of this 49th uh, address says that it, it it happens everything happens in the human heart we've got to go deeper than the surface level of eros as the world understands it because and i love this we are all unique and unrepeatable um, precisely because of our hearts and so that is where it is decisive from within our hearts not merely the actions that we perform and express ourselves with but it all expresses something that's happening deep in our hearts and it's easier to ignore that part of who we are and just live by the passions and the pleasures that this world has to offer us. And Jesus is not merely accusing us of falling into those passions and pleasures, but calling us to something greater than they can offer. Father Tim, it makes me think of how transformative theology of the body is when we take this look into sacred scripture, into the church's teaching, the challenge that God is posing. At the end of the day, this isn't just about adultery. And that's what Pope St. John Paul II is saying. This is why this is the second of the key biblical texts that he uses in theology of the body is the purity of desire, that integrity of self from attraction to desire to orientation, that we need to discern all of this so that it can be purified and elevated into the redemption of the body. St. Paul talks about is at the core of the mission of Jesus Christ. If you've been joining me for this Theology of the Body series and have enjoyed it, I'd love to hear how it's impacted you. I hope you're catching all of the episodes of Theology of the Body at relevantradio.com or wherever you catch your podcasts on the Trending with Tim Ray podcast. We summarize all of these great talks with guests such as Father Tim Grumbach joining me in this series. Do you know what the fruits of the Holy Spirit are? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-mastery, modesty. We could talk about all of these. They are so important for life. You want to live a happy life, a meaningful life? Pray for these fruits of the Holy Spirit. And isn't that what's great? They're actually fruits of the Spirit. They are gifts given to us. Not to be confused with the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. Why am I talking about this? Well, we're in our Theology of the Body series, and we're transitioning into a section that focuses very much so on this redemptive dimension of the body, that God is elevating our body through the grace of Jesus Christ. And we have walked over the last couple of weeks through Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, where Jesus is challenging us, not just in talking about adultery, but in talking about the purification, the purification, and I would say a sense of integrity in our desires when he says, You've been told before not to commit adultery, but I'm telling you not just to not commit adultery, but to not even look at a woman in a desirous way for you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. And if you've not been with us in the series, I hope you'll listen to that because it's been such a fundamental part of understanding this touch, this tension between concupiscence, that tendency towards sin as a result of the fall, but at the same time, the goodness within the human person and what is possible because of Jesus Christ. But what's interesting is that earlier on in that Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says during the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart because they will see God. And I love this statement because 
we we tend to, I would say, especially my generation, I remember when I was younger, people talked about the purity culture, and it almost felt like something cheesy that was joked about, and you almost rejected this whole idea of talking about anything, including virginity or purity. It was uncomfortable to talk about, it was awkward, and it was just kind of that thing of like, ugh, we don't want to talk about it. Even good kids, I hated that language, and even after college, when I started speaking at different events, I kind of cringed a little bit when it an event was called, you know, the purity ball or whatever it might be, because I think that the marketing tactics of our current culture have really sullied those words. And especially for the younger generation, when everything is marketed in such an attractive way, you know, we even use the word sexy for attraction, uh, attractive marketing campaigns that glitter, uh, we have to find better ways to communicate that sense of purity that is so important. And it's not just about sexuality, but the sense of integrity, that sense of happiness. For a woman, for a young woman, you will be comfortable. You will find ease in your body, in your life, if you have a sense of purity. But we've got to market it and talk in a way that is appealing, I think, to this younger generation. Also, talk about purity, those specific words, from a younger age so that they're not looked at as so cringeworthy when you hear about it, when you're of an age that's starting to talk about a sexual interaction. But I don't want to reduce this conversation to sexuality because that's not what Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body is. It is our human anthropology. And he cites in Matthew chapter verse, chapter 15, verse 11, when he's talking about how the apostles are criticized for not washing their hands before they eat. And there Jesus comes back at the Pharisees who are very legalistic in their mindset, you know, follow all the rules. They're focused on the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law. Not that we just excuse ourselves from responsibility, but that there's this conversion of heart. This is what the prophets prior to Jesus from Joel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they were all talking about this conversion of heart, that you're sacrificing yourself, that you're not just making all of these exterior sacrifices for people to see. So Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a man. It's what we say, what we do what proceeds from the heart through our actions that is unclean. And this points to this tension that each and every single one of us experience. This tension between what Pope, sorry, not Pope, what St. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 is this tension between the spirit and the flesh. That is the Holy Spirit and our fallen human nature. Not that the body is bad, that's a heresy and Manichaeism, and it's been rejected by the church. Pope St. John Paul II, when talking about this, says the man who lives according to the flesh is the man disposed only to that which comes from the world. When we always follow our desire, the latest thing that glitters is attractive, the newest marketing campaign, the new thing, whatever it is, we're always going to live our life on the level of the material world, missing that greater call, that transcendental dimension of the human person. Pope St. John Paul II in Catechetical Talk 51 says, In this struggle between good and evil, man proves to be stronger thanks to the power of the Holy Spirit, who's working within the human spirit, because it desires to bear fruit, and that fruit is good. I think that this is 
the answer to that unhappiness, that dissatisfaction, that discomfort, whether it's in your body, in relationships, with the way you're thinking, the bad habits and outright sin I'm engaging in. The answer is the grace of the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit into the apostles to help to give them, to fortify them, to fill them up in the grace of of God himself. He sends the advocate, the counselor. That is the Holy Spirit so that we can have the very life of God within us. And so what is that? How is it possible to overcome our tendency towards sin, to overcome that tension between our fallen human nature, concupiscence, the flesh, our desires, and the Holy Spirit? It's by living in a state of grace. It's by praying, begging God for the fruits of the Holy Spirit. We read about them in Galatians. They're key to us living out our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-mastery, modesty. These are all key. Now, most of them are there listened, listed in Galatians, but look up that list of the 12 fruits of the Holy Spirit. They will help you to grow in humility, to grow in generosity, in gentleness, in kindness, in patience. Who doesn't want that? It makes you a stronger human being. It makes you a human being with integrity. There are practical ways that we can practice these fruits of the Holy Spirit. But at the end of the day, it is absolutely a grace of God. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit, of God's grace-filled life living within us. And to restore yourself, to stay maintained in that state of grace, you go to confession. You confess your sins. You then receive our Lord Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity, worthily in human in Holy Communion. Graces upon graces are poured out upon you when you are living a sacramental life. Now, don't pat yourself on the back saying, hey, I'm doing great, because it is nothing but for the grace of God that you are able to do the very good that you do. Sinners can go to daily mass. Sinners certainly go to confession. I remember in college when we'd be lined up in the confessional line, we had confession available to us every single day in college at John Paul the Great Catholic University, my alma mater. And it was great, especially because it's a season in life where there's an opportunity or what should be a tremendous amount of growth. And I tried very hard to go to confession weekly. A lot of the students did. And I remember being in the confessional line and the president of the university would walk by Dr. Derry Connolly and he'd say, oh, you bunch of sinners. And it was true. You know, he'd say it with his thick Irish accent and we'd all kind of laugh. Some people might feel uncomfortable, but it was true. We only go to confession because we are humbly acknowledging that we have sinned. And so bringing this back to the theology of the body, why is this relevant? Because in the theology of the body, Pope St. John Paul II is pointing to how fundamental the redemption of the body is, but that it's only done in Christ. We don't save ourselves. God saves us. Jesus has brought about the redemption of the human race. In other words, the gates of heaven are open again, but we still have to work out with God our individual salvation. Jesus separates the goats from the sheep. 
And if you know this, sheep are pretty dumb. <laughs> That's why they need a shepherd. And so there's a certain level of a great analogy used when we talk about Jesus as the shepherd and us as the sheep, but because we cannot do the very good that God is calling us to in order to be with him in heaven unless we are following him, unless we are dependent upon him to bring us back into the fold through the grace of the sacraments. We are dependent upon that relationship, that dynamic with him through prayer, morning and night, to be united with him so that life with God can be possible both here and now and in heaven in the world yet to come. This is the challenge. And so this is why the fruits of the Holy Spirit are so fundamental. We read about them in Galatians. Love. What is love? Love is a lot of things. You do you today. That's what love is. That's what the culture says love is. But true love, the love of God, the word, if we were to look at it in the Greek, in the Latin, there are different ways to talk about it, caritas or agape. That's that sacrificial, life-giving, self-giving love. So why Peter, on the shore of Galilee, after Jesus Christ has resurrected and he's walking on, not the water, but on the seashore of Galilee, and the apostles have just gone back to life the way it was before, they're fishing, and he calls them. Peter goes diving out of the boat, throwing himself into the water with all of his clothes on after John recognizes that it's Jesus. And he goes to Jesus and they sit around the campfire, they're eating fish. And Jesus looks at Peter saying, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Do you love me? This threefold question that he asks over and over and over again. Pope Benedict XVI and others have commented on this. And it's almost as if he's asking Peter repeatedly because Peter isn't getting it. He's saying, do you love me? And Peter's saying, yes, I love you. Yes, I love you. And certain translations of this have commented that in this conversation between St. Peter and Jesus, there on the shore of Galilee and John, the la very last chapter of John, that we read Peter's saying, I love you, but he's saying like, I love you in a brotherly way. He hasn't quite made it to the point of that type of love that Jesus Christ is calling him to, agape, that sacrificial love, that life-giving, self-giving love that we see from Jesus on the cross that we're meant to imitate, but in our fallen human nature, we struggle. We really struggle to do. And so ultimately, we know the story of Peter. Peter was crucified, in fact, crucified upside down because in his humility, he recognized he was not worthy to die the same way Jesus Christ himself did. But he took himself to the point of sacrificial love. It's one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. It's one of the theological virtues as well, remember. So you can't love the way Christ loves without his intervention, without his grace. And praise God, it's a theological virtue because that means we can only receive it through grace. Joy is one of those fruits. Joy is not momentary happiness that's fleeting. Joy is the abiding, grace-filled life within God that we have this supernatural, supernatural happiness, supernatural joy that in the midst of experiencing our highs and lows of life and emotion, we abide in Him and we're confident in that joy. Peace. Who doesn't want peace? Now, I'm not talking about a supernatural sense of peace, of, hey, there's no war going on in the world. Hey, we can, I can do me, you can do you, and we don't clash ideas. No, peace is a sense of belonging. 
and the only place we truly belong to at the end of the day in a way that is completely accepting of us in our totality is with God in heaven. We create our domestic homes to create a sense of belonging and peace in our lives, but the greatest peace alone is in God. So why St. Augustine says, our souls are restless, O Lord, until they rest in thee. Patience. Patience is one that has not only to do with being patient in the moment to moment experiences in life, but patience and patience for the kingdom of heaven, patience in that slow conversion of God working through our sin so that grace can abound all the more. Kindness. Who doesn't need to work on kindness? Generosity. Faithfulness to God, to ourselves, to our neighbor. Gentleness. Self-mastery. I love that one. Self-mastery. It's one that needs to be pondered more often. We tend to think that it's just for kids who need to be disciplined, but we need to engage in our own sense of self-mastery. This is why the tradition of the church has focused for centuries on how important asceticism is. That is self-denial, fasting, so that we can grow and grow for the sake of the kingdom, all through the grace of Christ. So I challenge you, find out what those fruits of the Holy Spirit are. There are 12 of them. Write them down. Pray for them and also work on practical ways to grow in those 12 fruits. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. Let's dive into our Theology of the Body series. It's all about self-mastery and freedom. In these few catechetical talks by Pope St. John Paul II that he gave back in the end of the 1970s into the 80s. And he's talking about how important it is for us to, one, understand what freedom actually is. And two, to answer the call of self-mastery, all done in the grace of Jesus Christ, or the grace of the Holy Spirit. We understand this when Pope St. John Paul II is pointing us in the direction of how to be happy. In Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 13, St. Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to living according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, you put to death the deeds, the deeds of the body. I think that as I'm looking at this, if you put to death what St. Paul is saying, the deeds of the body, those desires of our body, and focus on living a life in the Spirit of God, you will find life. You will find joy. You will find hope. You will find peace. St. Paul lists all sorts of works of the flesh, from fornication, licentiousness, adultery, you name it, same-sex interaction. And he's challenging us to enter into the kingdom of God. In Galatians chapter 5, we read, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. St. Paul is pointing to the fact that God has rules to enter into his kingdom. God has a blueprint for the human person. When you live According to that blueprint, the natural orientation of the human body as God designed, made possible through the grace of Christ, you will be happy. You will find actual interior freedom. But why does this matter? Because at the end of the day, it has to do with heaven or hell. And we're afraid of those words. But that's what St. Paul, that's what Jesus Christ continues to preach. Freedom has a purpose. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, St. Paul says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as a pretext for living according to the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law finds its fullness in a single commandment. You shall 
love your neighbor as yourself. Pope St. John Paul II points to this as the true anthropological roots, that we find freedom in love through self-mastery. We read it in Galatians, you were called to freedom, so live according to the Spirit. That's what we need to do. St. Paul speaks of desiring to do those higher things of God that God is calling us to, but that our flesh is fighting against us. If you live according to the flesh, you become a slave to the flesh. And I think that that's what's so challenging is that we fail to see this, even in the face of this transgender crisis swarming around us. Pope St. John Paul II said, if you live according to the flesh, you become slave to the flesh that you cease to be capable of freedom. I think that's a powerful line. If we live according to just following our desires, our whims, and the ways of society, we cease to be capable of freedom, authentic interior freedom. And this is why Pope St. John Paul II says the true gift of self is the expression of freedom. How is this lived out? Well, it's lived out through self-mastery, being able to be a master of your own behavior, master of your desires, and that requires virtue. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, St. Paul said, remember, inspired by the Holy Spirit, because all of sacred scripture is, he says this, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from unchastity that each of you knows how to keep his own body with holiness and reverence, not as an object of lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. St. Paul then goes on to say, if you reject this, you reject God who gives you the Holy Spirit. So what's St. Paul pointing to? He's pointing us to a sense of ownership over our bodies, of holiness, which means to be set apart, that set apart portion for God to have reverence for our bodies. He says, the people who don't know God don't follow this way. But we who do know God are called to be masters over our own bodies, to not just follow the impulses and desires of society, of social media, and of our hearts, but to look deeper and have a deeper sense of freedom for the true happiness and the purpose God has in store for our life. And that means we turn to the grace of the Holy Spirit for that freedom.